My life is in shambles. I am truly discouraged. I think God even has forgotten me. No, they're, they're not my words. This is not some transparent pastoral confession to gain your trust. But they are words that echo in my memory, having heard them over the years from many more people than I would care to estimate. Maybe you know someone who is living in the cold darkness that those words figure. Maybe it's you. Maybe today. I hurt for you. You may even be here today as something of a last resort. You may be looking for something new, a pathway through your struggles, out of some pain and out of the distance that has been created between you and others or you and your true self. Maybe you're struggling emotionally or psychologically or financially or relationally or in a million other ways. If you are here today for those reasons, welcome. You may just be in the right place. I pray you are. Some hearing my voice are so removed from the anguish that was just portrayed that they actually stopped listening about two minutes ago. I understand. I do. It's, it's hard to confront despair. And I'm told by people who study such things and know a lot that it's a terrible way to begin a sermon. Maybe. 25 centuries ago, a community of Hebrews had a real reason to despair upon returning to Jerusalem to discover destruction. The homes that they used to live in were now occupied by others or just leveled. Their culture was no longer dominant. And the worst of all was that the glorious temple of God lay in ruins on the ground. They needed to be built up. They needed courage. They needed a message from God. They got it. Zechariah's vision. His fifth vision. So whether in despair or delight, whether you are in shambles or in celebration today, I invite you to pursue Holy Spirit wisdom and comfort and courage and clarity. Because I'm persuaded that the ancient message given through an angel to a prophet far from us, that very power that was communicated then is still alive and active, and God today can change 
your heart and mine. God can refresh any troubled heart, even in 2023. Let's look into that together. This chapter, and I'm going to read in a moment, but this includes at least these three elements. There's much more that could be said. I just want to go saying enough, and we'll ask God to add his blessing to that. There are three heads, the scene, the vision, and the interpretation. Nothing exotic here. The scene, the vision, and the interpretation. Let me read to you from God's word. I'm just going to read verse 1 about the scene. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. I'm going to ask you to take a brief journey of the mind. Imagine beholding an ancient Middle Eastern horizon at twilight. Beholding all of its rugged beauty. And as you're doing so, you, you, you turn away and you realize that you're actually somewhere in the ancient city of Jerusalem, the city of David. It's, it's, it's the night of February the 15th, 519 B.C. That's very specific, I know. But as you're imagining, I want you to turn your gaze slightly from the desert sands and the rolling hillsides to discover your place in Jerusalem. And craning your neck just a little bit to listen, you hear the faint tailings of a conversation between two people that's taking place in a home not far from where you are. Drawing closer, you hear the very words that are being spoken in turn. And nearer still, you notice something surprising. There's only one person in that glowing chamber. Well, only one person that's visible to you. Having been roused from his slumber, a youthful Hebrew prophet named Zechariah acts and sounds as if he's having a conversation with an angel. Interested, you, you watch and you listen and you wonder, does the prophet and third generation priest in Israel, does, does he see an angel right now? There's a voice. It's audible. You're sure. You can hear it. But you don't know what he sees. Had there been an utterance of that famous angelic caution when someone is encountered by an angel? Do not fear? Well, you don't know. You came late. You didn't hear it. Regardless, you know that you're on the fringe of a conversation between heaven and earth. And lingering for a moment, you surprise that this is no, no bodily visitation by the angel, but rather, as the report says, 
he was speaking, he was talking to Zechariah, not walking with Zechariah, but you can't be certain for sure. The voice, oh yes, very real. And then stepping aside from your fantastical journey, it's over. And you're returned here and now. And you're free to reflect upon that scene with your modern curiosity. What was present? What was missing? What did it mean? In the preceding weeks, we've learned from Andrew and from Jason that a remnant of Jewish exiles were allowed to return to Judah with the intent of rebuilding a temple. And they came with the backing and the blessing of a foreign king. They were excited, I imagine. Some had been born in captivity and knew nothing of the city. But those who were older told them stories. And it seemed like a noble deed, a restoration. But in the intervening 20 years, because this, remember, is 519, not 538, about 20 years have gone by. And, and to have a look around Jerusalem, those who returned, even after 20 years, were disappointed. There had been very small things happening on Temple Mount. There wasn't a widespread enthusiasm for the work. And the Jews were discouraged and forsaken. Well, you may ask why. Well, perhaps an image I'm asking to be projected right now will help you crystallize some thoughts about that. What do you feel when you see that? It is not the remnant of Solomon's temple. It is just ancient ruins. There's rubble in the foreground. There's some walls that seem as though they've remained for a long time. But if you're an optimist, you see, wow, they've rebuilt some of it. They were discouraged because there were no walls there. Only a few foundation stones had been laid, so their frustration was big. So much rubble, so little temple. God, why? Foundation stones. Most Jews would gladly have traded those foundation stones for the picture you can see. Thank you. Enter the prophet. Zechariah almost seems to be a, a prophet in training to me, like, like he's an apprentice. Did he, did he have a mentor in, in Haggai who had prophesied in Israel before him and was still continuing? The elder Haggai? Zechariah's demeanor and his words in the first three chapters do seem a bit outside of the norm for a mature Hebrew prophet and priest, at least in, in my opinion. And not only in my opinion, but that of my young research associate who was with me in the first hour, Bradley Fuller. He sat right over here. He and I have been talking about this passage for several weeks, going back and forth with questions and concerns and wonder and awe in some ways. 
But I, I saw the, the prophet as being just a little bit odd. And Bradley, in his 14-year-old wisdom, who gave me plenty of insights through his eyes, his keen sight and intellect, I got to see this passage in a different way than I normally would have, but we agreed on some things. And first thing we agreed on was that Zechariah slept a lot. Well, he did. But you shouldn't be really surprised about that. Visions, and especially when you're having dreams, kind of means you're going to be asleep. Or probably. We also agreed and noticed that he had many, many questions. And it seemed as though he asked a lot of questions because he was actually willing to learn something. Next, we were impressed that despite the, the angel's subtle sarcasm and gentle rebuke, the prophet always chose not to take offense but to strive to understand. I think that's admirable. It's all too rare. Now, Bradley and I differed on some matters as well. He, he chose Zerubbabel as being the hero of the story. Now, Zerubbabel wasn't even in the vision. He's only mentioned in the story. But Bradley saw him as being bold and committed and unwilling to let a mountain of obstacles get in his way. He was, if there was a mountain there... Bradley said, he's going to flatten it. I respect that. My hero is the prophet. Not the least because of his ability to say certain words. To say a certain phrase, in fact. Those three words that men find so difficult to say. Ladies, you're probably tracking with me, right? Those three words that men find so hard to say. No, 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 not those three words. These three words. I don't know. It's just not done. But he said it over and over and over. And in fact, in the opening chapters of this book, it's just filled with numerous examples of his humble uninformed honesty. I don't know. And despite being able to see and very accurately describe the visions that he saw, he still really had no idea of the meaning. At all. Not once. So, it's kind of endearing, really. It was ancient Israel, city of Jerusalem, an angel, a prophet, a vision, an interpretation, a God story being told for his people. That was the scene. We're going to move to the vision. Let me read some verses for you now. Verse 2 and 3 and then 11 and 12. And he said to me, that is the angel, the answering angel, announcing angel, what do you see? And I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it and, and seven lamps on it with 
seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees nearby it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, Lord? And then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand here in verse 11? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes which are beside uh, which uh, the golden oil is poured out? Good questions. He needed to know. In some ways, it's really clear enough, right? Uh, You heard the description, so it's it's a golden lampstand. Do you you see one in your head? You have a picture of a, a golden lampstand? Maybe you've seen a picture at some point. Maybe you're just imagining it right now because you're a creative. There's a bowl on top, seven lamps with each one. There are lips on wicks, and there's trees, and there's oil, and there's pipes, and that's clear, right? Simple. So what image do you see in your mind's eye right now? How clear is it? Probably better than mine, but regardless, after, I'm going to offer you an image now for your consideration, and I just hope it's helpful. This artist's rendering of this passage. It looks immature and very mature all at the same time. My mental image wasn't quite like that, but it wasn't far afield either, and I suspect neither was yours. And by the way, technicians in the balcony, thank you for projecting all the images today. Appreciate it. During the decades of the wilderness wanderings following uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt, there was a portable uh, tabernacle very precisely designed, that would travel with the people, and that was where God met with his people, and they worshipped him. In the midst of it was one very large golden lampstand that we know as a menorah. And by all accounts, it was splendid. It was regal. It was pure gold and stunning to look at almost blinding. Later, as the people were able to come into the land of promise and and build the temple under Solomon, in that temple, there were 10, albeit smaller, 10 lampstands, each of them filled out with all of the lamps and all of the necessary oil. And they were each one in the tabernacle and in the temple, tended by the priesthood. There were people ordained to the work of the menorah. They cleaned it. They polished it. They repaired it as needed. And one of the recurring responsibilities they had was to replenish the oil in the bowl. You know why. The flame was never to be extinguished. There was supposed to be always enough oil to keep all of the flames going all the time. And so priests would come and go. It was a ritual responsibility that was repeated often. In Zechariah's vision, the lamp was quite different than those earlier ones. This lamp in the vision is supplied its oil 
through a system of pipes or tubes which collected golden oil from the olive trees directly and channeled it into the bowl without human intervention. Cutting out the middleman. It was very different from the menorah that had gone before in the temple and in the tabernacle. This one was gravity feed. And the design seems very efficient to me, really. You engineers will think it's probably wonderful. Not labor-intensive. What was Bradley's take on the oil? To do him justice, I have to read his quote. Golden oil sounds important, just like the oil that french fries are cooked in. When I read that in his note in the email, I suddenly wanted french fries. I actually want some right now. So do you. I was hungry, and I still am, and he's not wrong. The oil was very, very important to keep supplying the oil for the lamps to burn and to prefigure something that was coming later, to prefigure the supplying of that one perfect sacrifice, the flowing of the blood of Jesus, our Savior, the perfect sacrifice and atonement for sin that was yet to come. This points in that direction. No other priest necessary now. Zechariah's vision was intended for God's people then and now. From the vision to the interpretation. Let me read some verses in between, verses 5 and following. This is all now an angel interpreting the vision that the angel had brought. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. I love him for that. And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain and and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line or the capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. That word's used 20 times in the Old Testament. 19 times it's interpreted capstone. This one time, some editor said it had to be the, the line, the measuring line. It doesn't matter. Zerubbabel was in it from the ground up, from the very foundation to the very capstone. That is interpretation of the message. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel wait, I thought this book was named Zechariah. It is. Well, was he then just to be a spokesperson to pass on the message to Zerubbabel? Yes, because that's exactly what every prophet had to do. 
They were called and tasked and ordained to do that very thing. Hear from God, tell the people, sometimes individuals. That's the purpose of a prophet in the midst. And that's what Zechariah did. Apparently, he did it pretty well. What was the heart of the message? And I return to verses 4 through 9 for that. This is where the message to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. This isn't about you, Zerubbabel. This isn't about you, Zechariah. This isn't even about the angel I'm sending to announce all this to you. It's about me. It says not by might, which generally means national or military force. It's not by strength, meaning that of a man or many men, but by my spirit, the life-giving, powerful, holy spirit. That's what the message was about. If I may, let me give you my paraphrase of this passage. This is not inspired. God talking. Zerubbabel, my temple will be erected at exactly the right time. And it will not be through your might or power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This will be a spiritual undertaking requiring faith, not simply a building project of human proportions. The pile of rubble before you will become level ground as it is harvested to provide the materials for the building of my temple. And the capstone from the former temple shall be restored to prominence in the new one. And when you finish your task, Zerubbabel, dedicate my temple with these words. Grace, God's grace alone did this. Trust me, Zerubbabel. Keep the faith. Kind of powerful to get a message like that from God, isn't it? Do you think that gave solace to our builder friend, our civil engineer friend? I suspect so. The divine eyes that are referenced just shortly after that and remind me of a passage that has been close to my heart for many, many years. And it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. And it says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his, those whose hearts are dedicated unfailingly to him. God's eyes are searching his horizon to look for you, to look for me, when our hearts are inclined towards him. Oh, he always knows. He doesn't have to see us to know that. But it says he's always scanning for us. And I think here, the builder took great solace in that because it was a godly promise. Over 2,500 years ago, the prophet told the message to a builder, God's got this. I think it gave him comfort. And it should give us comfort too. Because God hasn't changed at all. At the chapter's conclusion, we read of what are known as the two anointed ones. A very faithful rendering would be sons of oil. Same Hebrew idiom, the sons of oil, that speaks to me. And that's in verses 13 and 14. 
And in my opinion, this uh, reference may well represent the two priests who were currently active in Israel at the time. The elderly Haggai, who had been in captivity and had come with the first returnees to do the work and to prophesy. And then also young Zechariah. I think it's referring to those two. That could be a number of other things. I, I don't know, and I'm willing to say it. But my suspicion is that it refers to those two because they were the ones who, unlike others, did have access to the divine counsel. They did hear from God and were challenged then to be the conduit of that grace to others. And God often did things in twos, didn't he? Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, Elijah and Elisha, Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas. The list really goes on and on. He chooses to use two very often in support of one another. I think the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are rightly told to be those who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. You'll need to ask Bradley what his opinion was on the two anointed ones. We didn't actually talk about it. I don't know. Might be fun to ask him. Some concluding questions for you, though. What was missing from the scene? Well, a, a visible angel. Zerubbabel wasn't there. There was no progress really on the temple. There was no encouragement among the people. All those things were, were missing from the scene. What was missing from the vision? A priest. What was missing from the interpretation? Nothing. Is some part or much of your life in shambles and seemingly laying in ruins before you? Are you taking one step after another without courage, not knowing where your strength will come from? Are you without courage in your own weakness or maybe because of the ill will of others focused upon you? Do you feel as though God has forgotten you? You're not alone. Throughout time and even among those who are strong in faith, faith in the one true God of heaven and earth, faith in the creator and provider, sustainer, friend, people have had the same as you, doubt and pain. So my final offering this morning is this, and I pray it gives you some renewed faith and some understanding because the Hebrew translation of the name Zechariah is Yahweh remembers. Zerubbabel was not forgotten. The returnees were not forgotten. The work at the temple was not forgotten because God remembers, always remembers. Yahweh is strong to remember you regardless of your struggles or your celebrations. It was true 20 years after the returnees got into the land, and it's true thousands of years later. God is for us. He is with us. And by the most amazing grace, he is in us. 
through Christ. As a follower of Jesus, can you see what's not there? Can you trust God to make a way for you no matter what your circumstances? Are you willing to trust him to be the invisible hand that upholds you always? I pray that you will. And if you have not yet trusted in Jesus and don't know the meaning of many of the words that were just spoken, I want to pray for you as well. That you would, in fact, hear that heart message from God. Be born again. Repent, believe, trust in Jesus, even today. Because God has not changed, nor has his will or his plan. The mind, the heart, and the will of God are revealed through visions, surely, to prophets. It's revealed powerfully in his written word now for us. So I want to pray for you. Because when it's all been said and done, well, then eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are, your mercies are so great. Your faithfulness is new every morning. Your plan is unabridged. It is being lived moment by moment exactly according to what you have ordained. Thank you that we can speak to you now from our hearts. And I pray, O oh God, that there would be hearts in the hearing of my human voice that would now be attentive to your divine one, speaking in their inward place, that they would realize we are all sinners. Oh, we were created perfect and fine and wonderful in a garden of paradise. We lacked nothing, and our first parents, even in that abundance, turned away in rebellion and said, no. I want to be in charge. And since then, each one of us has, while being born physically, has come into this world spiritually dead. And what a horror that notion brings. But in your grace, you were not willing to leave us lost and abandoned on some distant shore, struggling to know what's true. You sent Jesus the Christ. Lord, you were willing to come yourself, to leave the the blessing of eternal peace and harmony with the Father and with the Spirit there in, in heaven. And you came to earth, humbled yourself to become human, and were willing to be humiliated on the cross in payment for our sin, the burden of which only you truly can bear. We're grateful today, Lord, that the supply of that one perfect sacrifice has flown but once. You said it was finished and by your blood, we have been transformed, made alive. You made it possible. The only thing left for us to do is believe you, to trust in you. And I pray that some would, even right now, just simply say, oh God, forgive me, a sinner. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. I will live my life for you. And thank you for forgiving me when I don't. I pray, oh God, that you would take delight in what has been said and done in the hearts of the people here today. That worship would truly have occurred to your glory and to your joy. May we now humble ourselves, seeking your wisdom and your way, all the more because of our needs today. Thank you for meeting us. 
and empowering us and illuminating our path that we need not despair. Hallelujah. Amen.